Well, welcome and thank you for clicking on the podcast and checking it out. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are making our way through the book of Genesis verse by verse. In the last episode, we covered chapter 22, which is, as I said, one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture, the Akedah Yitzhak, or the sacrifice of Isaac. And in that episode, we discussed how the sacrifice of Isaac was a picture or a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus. And I mentioned how, for example, both Isaac and Jesus carried the wood for their own sacrifices up the hill. How Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was a foreshadowing of how God the Father would one day sacrifice his son in that very spot. And so if you missed the last episode, I highly encourage you to give that one a listen. And that brings us now to chapter 23, which is a relatively short chapter. It's only 20 verses long. And as we'll see, and we saw in the last chapter, Abraham's spiritual journey sort of reached its climax in the previous chapter with the sacrifice of Isaac. And so basically his biography in the Bible is almost complete at this point. However, there are a couple of final issues for him to wrap up before we see the transition into his son Isaac becoming the focus. And so we begin this chapter with verses 1 and 2, which read, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And so, of course, one of the primary themes and reasons for this chapter is the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, and her burial. Sarah is the first matriarch of Israel. And it may not be evident to you, or you may have never even thought about it, but Sarah is actually the only woman whose lifespan is given in the Bible, which is a testimony to her importance. Now, she dies when Isaac is 37 years old, which was three years before he was married. And we also learn a couple of chapters from now that Abraham actually outlived Sarah by 38 years. You know, when I read this, I immediately think of people who survived their spouse and how difficult it has to be to adjust to life without the person that you've been married to. And I've witnessed firsthand how my own mother has continued to adjust to life without my father who passed away 17 years ago. And just finding the courage and the strength and having the resiliency to continue on after losing the person you were married to for almost 40 years, it must be and has to be one of the most difficult things in life to deal with. You know, even for me, sometimes it feels like it's only been six months since my father passed, and then some days it feels like it's been every bit of 17 years, and so I can only imagine what it must be for the spouse. But one other note regarding Sarah's lifespan. Remember that back in Genesis 6, we discussed various possibilities on how to interpret the long lifespans in the early part of Genesis. Some interpret the lifespans and the actual numbers given there as having other significance and also conveying some sort of a meaning. And if you remember, soon after the flood in Genesis 6, God ordained the lifespans of humans to 120 years. And we do immediately see the lifespans drop dramatically from that point forward until we settle in into about what we experience today. Well, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. And that number, 127, connotes 120 plus 7. 
Now, seven is the number of completeness in Scripture, and so there's the thought that Sarah's number of years represents the full 120 that God ordained plus seven, which is a sacred and complete number. And thus, together, the 120 and the seven denote that Sarah's life was full. It was complete and of great importance. Verse 2 tells us that Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now that verb, went in, that Hebrew verb there actually means to come or to enter. And so, as it's used here, it is a bit ambiguous as to the exact meaning. And so what commentators wrestle with is determining what it means exactly. In other words, did Abraham enter her tent to mourn? Or did he come from Beersheba to Hebron to mourn? And if you interpret it as he came from Beersheba to Hebron to mourn, it opens up the possibility for some people to speculate that perhaps Abraham and Sarah no longer lived together, perhaps as some sort of a fallout over the sacrifice of Isaac. But the truth is, we just don't know for sure. Verses 3 and 4 read, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now let me point out something here about this chapter. You may be familiar with it as titled, The Death of Sarah. And I've also given it that same title in my podcast. However, the narrative of Sarah's death and burial is truly a a really brief statement. And it seems to give way to more of what this chapter is really about, which is the acquisition of a burial ground for the family. And it says that Abraham rose up. It was customary that mourners would actually sit on the ground. But Abraham goes before the Hittites and tells them that he is a sojourner and a foreigner in their land. The Hebrew phrase used there is ger toshav, which literally means alien and resident. And that's important because in those days, if you were an alien resident, you weren't allowed to purchase real estate. Remember, this is not Abraham's land. He's the foreigner. He is the stranger. He is the resident alien. He owns no land. And because he's a foreigner, he's not even entitled to purchase land. So think about this for a moment. Abraham has done all that God has asked, all that God has commanded. He left his home. He left his family. He's been in precarious situations with multiple kings, and he was even prepared to sacrifice his only son. And yet, after all of that, he's not even been given the promised land. In fact, he doesn't even have a place to bury his own wife. And so now, he asked the Hittites for property where he can bury Sarah. Now the ESV translates Abraham as saying, Give me land to bury my dead. But the Hebrew verb form used there can mean either to give, to sell, or to pay. And so based on the conversation that follows, it's clear that Abraham is asking to purchase land as a burial site. In fact, the word he uses actually denotes an inheritable sepulcher. Now that may seem like just a small incidental detail, but it's not. And it is key to understanding the rest of the conversation. But we continue with verses 5 through 9, which say, And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. 
Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. It's interesting that even the Hittites recognize God's blessing on and protection of this foreigner Abraham. And so they address him as a mighty prince or, or a prince of God. He may be a foreigner, but they treat him with much respect. And the Hittites actually tell him that they will allow him to bury his dead in one of their tombs. But Abraham arose and he bowed to the Hittites. Now this is a very humbling gesture for someone whom the Hittites just addressed as a mighty prince. But it is an act of gratitude and respect on Abraham's part. And he actually tells them that if they're willing to let him bury his dead, to go and plead with Ephron, the son of Zohar. Now this is a rare identification of a non-Israelite by his father's name, which suggests that Zohar was an outstanding man among the Hittites. And so what does Abraham want them to plead with Ephron about? To sell him the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. And it's at the end of his field for the full price. So Abraham is asking to be allowed to buy the cave of Machpelah at full price. But the problem is that in the ancient world, owners usually didn't sell their land to any outsiders. And there was oftentimes an emotional attachment to the land in the ancient Near East. There was a sense of responsibility to the family or to the clan and to future descendants and to hold on to what it was that they had inherited. And referring to the cave of Machpelah, Machpelah is a term meaning twofold or double cave or split cave. But it is unclear whether the tomb chambers were side by side or if they were above one another. Now most often a family tomb was used by several generations. The body was laid in a sort of shelf along with some other grave goods such as, you know, maybe some personal items, some trinkets, maybe some weapons. And then later on, the skeletal remains would be removed and placed in another chamber or moved to an ossuary box. Or maybe even just swept to the back of the tomb to make room for another burial. Now, I don't want to just skip over this here because it's important. Not only will Sarah be buried here, but as we'll see later on, Abraham will be buried here too. As well as Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah. I mean, this is a historical site to the Jewish people. In fact, after the Western Wall in Jerusalem, this has remained the most sacred monument of the Jewish people, and it is located in the present-day Hebron, which is located about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. So, just a quick 20-second history lesson is in order here. During the Byzantine period, a church was actually built over the tomb, but Jews were still allowed to pray in the area. But after the Arab invasion and the conquest of Israel in the 7th century, the church was converted into a mosque. Jews and Christians were then forbidden to enter. And then after that, infidels were even forbidden to ascend beyond the seventh step of the outer wall. Now, this situation lasted for 700 years until Hebron was liberated by Israeli defense forces in June of what year? For you prophecy and history buffs, you guessed it. 1967. And then at that time, Jews, Christians, and Muslims were given freedom to worship inside. And now, back to the story. 
verses 10 and 11. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you. Bury your dead. So Ephron agrees to give Abraham the cave, as well as the field, to bury his dead. And he did so in the presence of all the people. So now Abraham's claim to the property is a bit more secure. Ephron willingly gives it to Abraham, including description of it, in front of witnesses, at the city gate, which was the usual place for legal transactions. Verses 12-16 through read, Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So after Ephron offers to give Abraham the land to bury his dead, Abraham responds by basically turning down the offer. So why in the world would Abraham turn down the offer for a free tomb to bury Sarah? Abraham's probably aware how gifts of land are a bit unstable, and he's also aware that Ephron's heirs could lay claim to the land after Ephron died if it was viewed as some sort of a donation. And so he seeks to pay full price for the land to make it all the more legal. He wants a final sale of the property, thereby cementing and assuring his claim to the land. And in the course of the conversation, Ephraim just sort of nonchalantly names 400 shekels of silver as the price, and Abraham agrees to pay the full price, or literally at full silver. And it tells us that Abraham weighed out 400 shekels. And he weighed out the silver on scales because at that time there was no such thing as coinage. I mean, coins weren't even a thing until somewhere around the 7th century BC. And by the way, 400 shekels of silver was a lot of money. More money than a common laborer would expect to earn in a lifetime. Now the last verses of this chapter, verses 17 through 20, are sort of a summary of the transaction and sort of reads a bit like a legal document. So verse 17 begins, So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Yep, sounds a bit like a legal document for a real estate purchase. I mean, it includes the identity of the buyer and the seller, the location of the property, a description of the property, the presence of witnesses in a public proceeding, and on and on. And although much of this chapter focuses on the real estate transaction, let's not forget why it's taken place. And that's because... Sarah has died, and Abraham is trying to honor her by giving her the burial she deserves. He's purchasing a tomb for her and for future family members. 
And this piece of land, it also provides hope and a promise of the whole land. And it's the first piece of real estate in the promised land and was purchased by a founding father. And this marks the beginning of these alien residents seeking a homeland. I mean, think about it. Abraham could have simply buried Sarah in a Hittite tomb, as the Hittite suggested and would have allowed him. But by securing a piece of real estate in the land that God had promised him, Abraham once again demonstrates his commitment to that promise and his belief that his descendants would inherit the land. I mentioned earlier that this site is the second most venerated site for the Jewish people, and I can certainly see why. I mean, this is where the first patriarchs and matriarchs are buried. But as Christians, we look to a different tomb. We look at an empty tomb. And just as Abraham looked at Sarah's tomb as a commitment to God's promise, as Christians, we should view Christ's empty tomb as God's promise as well. The resurrection provides proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. In John 11:25, we read the words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I lay it all down, Jesus, I surrender. Holy God, you have been in me, but I'm taking.